Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's a scary thing to stand before someone who has the authority to make significant decisions that will determine the outcome of your life, either good or bad. I was reminded of that a few weeks ago when I stood with a young man, senior in high school, whose life desire was to be a part of the, the armed forces, and he wanted to go to one of the service academies. Not sure whether he wanted to go to Annapolis or to West Point. But in order to do that, you have to have a congressional approval. And so he was just about to go into his interview with a congresswoman from Arizona and also with another committee of people from the armed forces. And I could tell from his face, I could tell from his palm, I could tell from his body posture, he was tight. He was focused because he was just really under the gun. It's a scary thing to stand before that. And even a few hours after he had the interview, he was like an entirely different young man. Like a whole nother person moved into his body. He was relieved even before he knew the outcome. The outcome was that he did receive that appointment, that nomination, and, and he has his choice of several service academies that he can go to. But it was a scary thing going into it. It's a time in which perhaps you have experienced that doing a job interview. And as you stand before that man or woman who has the authority to either say yes or no or that committee or that process it's a scary thing knowing that your income is going to be determined your course of life is going to be determined by the decision that somebody else makes that's scary it's also scary to a degree at least it is for me anytime you get on a plane and especially if you leave the country or you drive across the border or you walk across the border you have to go through an evaluation as to whether your credentials will allow you to get back in. Have you had that experience? Don't you have just a little twinge of anxiety before you walk up to that, that window or you hand your credentials over? Is there, are they all going to be okay? No matter how many times you've done it before. Or perhaps some of you, like I, have had the unfortunate situation of standing before a judge. Senior in high school, arrested for disorderly conduct at one of our football games. If you ask me if alcohol was involved, I'm going to have to take, I mean, plead the fifth. I'll leave it at that. Somebody told me afterwards, I don't believe that story about you. I said, believe it. <laughs> Here's a judge that has the opportunity to really show mercy and grace or to make my life for another season a living hell. That's scary. But as scary as that is, some of you have had opportunities to be there and maybe you haven't broken the law, but you're standing before a judge and, and that judge is determining custody or that judge is determining some type of financial reparation. That judge is making decisions that will radically make a difference in the outcome of your life. And that is a scary place, isn't it? As scary as that is, think about how much more so it would be if there was someone who was sitting in judgment on whether you would spend eternity with God 
or separated from him. Literally make your life heaven or hell. How scary would that be? That'd be terrifying. And yet we're told that whenever we come before a place like this, we tend to make reasons. If you're on the spot, you want to give reasons for why you think that person should rule in your favor. Sometimes people would look at it as excuses. You know, if you're a teacher, a number of you are teachers in here, how many of you have had a student that came up and there was a requirement, a stu- a, 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 an assignment that was due, and characteristically, if I was to start this out, say, I don't have my homework because, why? The dog ate my homework. Right, throw the dog under the bus. Just great. Evidently, we do it a lot. What about if... Uh, you owe a bill and, and someone's calling you to check up on something that you haven't paid yet. What's the standard line that's used? The check is what? In the mail. I mean, we've all thought that, if not used it. We certainly have heard it, but it's, it's an excuse. What about if you're driving and you have an opportunity to meet some of Phoenix Finest? All right, and the lights are going, and they pull you over. I know most of you have never, because you are law-abiding, God-fearing people. You meticulously obey those traffic laws, right? I got that. But just in case, here are some things that I I sort of needed some levity, so I went to some police websites to see some of the excuses that people gave. (laughs) A lot of them have to do with, I needed to go to the bathroom, like really bad. And that was not put necessarily in that polite a language in many places. Or my speedometer was wrong. You ever try that one? Maybe you just came back from the mechanic, but like one lady that was from sea level, she was in, in Denver, and she said, my speedometer's wrong. It must not have adjusted to the altitude. <laughs> I don't think it works that way. Or someone in a place where there are leaves that actually fall off of trees and snow that falls from the sky said, I needed to get these leaves off my windshield. I need to get the snow off the windshield so I could see where to go. That's a great excuse for driving too fast. I got a cramp in my leg and it caused me to depress the accelerator. Yeah, right. Couldn't read the speedometer because I forgot my glasses. <laughs> Think about that one a while. Or, what are you hassling me for? I just had a couple of beers. You need to go over to this guy's house. I was just over at this guy's house. He has so much alcohol in his house that he could outfit the whole neighborhood. What are you hassling me for for just having a couple of beers? You mean that house over there with all the lights on it? Yes, sir, that house right there. You just came for that? Yes, sir, that house right there. Sir, that's a liquor store. (laughs) You think he had more than a couple of beers? So sometimes we come up with stuff that might be somewhat lame and excuses or rationalizations or justification. If that's true in this life, don't you think that when we stand before our ultimate judge, the Lord God, the creator of the universe, that we might be tempted to come up with some excuses. And I wonder if they would be lame, because you see, one of these days, we will stand, according to the scriptures, before the king and creator of the universe as our ultimate judge. And if he were to ask you this question, or one like it, why should I let you into my kingdom? What would you say? Would you be tempted to come up with some lame excuses or statements? Today in the scripture that you just saw read, uh, 
we see a portion, and it sort of begs that that type of question may have been asked. What are the qualifications to get into your kingdom, Jesus? You know, as I've gone through this whole study, and Caleb has laid it out, and the few times I've had opportunity to speak, we, we've been telling you about how often the kingdom is mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount, and it answers the question, Christ is the king, then where is the kingdom? And we come down to the end of this sermon and, and we see someone who is evidently wanting to know what are the entrance requirements. And that's what Jesus is speaking into. Now understand, there are entrance requirements and they are steep. They are stiff. They're very stringent. Matter of fact, Jesus earlier in this passage in Matthew chapter 5 verse 20 said this, unless your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, of the religious leaders who are meticulous in keeping the law, unless your righteousness exceed them, you will never enter into my kingdom. So you can see as he goes through this and he lays out a lot of stuff, they may have come to this point and say, well, what will it take? Jesus in verse 21 of chapter 7 says, This not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Let's hit the pause button there. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Another way to put it is, as some people have said, not everybody talking about heaven's going there. Not everybody who speaks of Jesus, even in very positive terms, not everybody who sings of Jesus' name in church services and proclaims of him and their devotion and all these types of things, not all of them will be entering God's kingdom. That's what Jesus just said. Lord, Lord was, in some people's minds, a, a, an affectionate term, a respectful term. It's the type of thing that you could simply say, Lord, to someone as sir. And sometimes it's done that way in the scriptures. I think this has far greater impact and weightiness. You see, for a Jewish person, they had such respect for the name of God. They had such respect for who he was that they would not speak his name. They would substitute words for it. Or they would write different terms for it. And in this case, Lord, Lord means I believe you. I follow you. I am one of your disciples. Jesus, Jesus, you are my Lord. You are my Lord. I acknowledge you. I identify with you. And Jesus says, not everyone who says that to me will enter into my kingdom. But only the person that does the will of the Father. You may ask, well, what is that? Because that sounds like a lot of good things, and there are many good things. We talked about a different lifestyle. We will continue to. The scriptures speak of that. But what is the will of the Father? We see a hint of this in, in John chapter 6, where Jesus has just hit, uh, fed 5,000 men plus women and children. So it was many more than 5,000. He feeds them, and they come to him, and they say to him in John 6, What do we have to do to be good enough to get into your kingdom? And Jesus says, Don't work for the food that satisfies your stomach. Instead, do the work of God. And they said, well, what is the work of God? And here's what he said. It's an interesting turn on that word work. He says, to believe in him whom the Father has sent. What's the work? Foundational to everything else, it's faith in Jesus. Faith in his crucifixion who died in our place and faith in his resurrection from the dead. 
That's the work, that's the will of the Father that passes muster. But you see, a lot of people don't believe that. They want to profess, I'm going to profess, I'm going to profess. And, and we see throughout this that uh, there are individuals that do that in churches. There were individuals that did that in that day. James, the brother of Jesus, says this. He says, you say you have faith in God and you do well. You say that you believe that God is one. But do you realize that even the demons believe that God is one and they shudder? They quake in their sandals. They had right orthodoxy, but they had not appropriated it for themselves. They had not placed their faith in him. A mere profession is something to be... Uh, cautious of a number of weeks ago uh, Emily my wife for those of you that don't know and I had the opportunity to travel to Germany to visit some friends that were there and and while we were there we took a little side excursion in Nuremberg which was the location is the capital of the Nazi party during World War II and it was also uh, a place where the the war crime trials were held afterwards which are now held in The Hague and we went to a place called the Document Center and it chronicled both the economic, the socio, the political environment in Germany leading up to the rise of Hitler and Nazi power and, and all the way through the Nuremberg Laws, which then gave different classes of citizens and the, all the Holocaust, everything that went with that and leading up to the war crimes trials. It was sobering, but it was really good to do that. But it caused me to begin to wonder even more about Hitler. Who is this man? How did he rise? What, what was going on? And I found that early in his life that he, his mother was very devoutly religious and she had him baptized in their church. And when he was a young boy, about six or seven, he was actually confirmed in that church. And, and in one of his books, Mein Kampf, he talks in terms a lot about his admiration and respect for Jesus. And, and he mentions the name of Jesus. And some people have used that to think that he had religious affinity with Jesus and yet when you look at the totality of his life, most historians would look and say, there's no way. He was irreligious. He was anti-Christ with the things that he did. But yet, why would he do that? I believe the historians that are writing this say it was to curry favor with the people, knowing that he could never get into position unless he also acknowledged Jesus to a populace who mostly believed in him to somehow sanctify himself and his views. He did it because it was politically expedient in his public persona. I gotta tell you, I, I am concerned deeply as I believe that you should be when we see politicians who align with Jesus and align with the evangelical community because it's politically expedient and their life does not match what they say not everybody that says to me lord lord jesus says will enter in my kingdom well then what do you have to do what do you have to do to to demonstrate all of this well evidently the person or people that with whom jesus is talking had the same thing because they go on and they say on that day jesus says many will say to me like in response to a question, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? 
Don't you think we did great things for you? And Jesus says this. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Wow. I look at those three things, and I don't see what some Christians have called the filthy five or the nasty nine or the dirty dozen. You fill in whatever you think that might be, what pet sins you think are there that no Christian should ever do. And we look at that legalistically, and Jesus doesn't address any of those. What does he say? They're saying we prophesied. We preached the gospel in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did mighty great works in your name. And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. Now, notice the word know here, and you won't know that from English, but basically it's a term that really speaks to an experiential knowledge, not an intellectual knowledge. Not knowing about, but knowing experientially. In the Older Testament, Hebrew terms that mirror this thing are has a husband and wife know each other sexually. They know each other intimately and personally. They experience one another in a uniquely, wonderfully, and mysterious way. Jesus is saying, I never knew you. You may have aligned with me. You may have done things in my name. I never knew you. You really weren't a part of the team. You can say, well, how is that even possible? How could they do these great things? I just want you to know that not everybody who names the name of Jesus, especially religiously, is talking about the same Jesus of the Scriptures. And not everybody who does good and humanitarian things and even things that seem to be miraculous according to Jesus are a part of his family. We need to be cautious with this. There are many Christian workers or claim to be Christian workers who do amazing things and teach amazing things and can articulate things amazingly, can amass a following but I wonder if it's in the flesh, not the spirit. You see, there's different ways that these types of things can happen. One can be that they actually did do these things in the power of God. But see, God has said, my word's not mocked. I won't be mocked. When my word goes forth, it will accomplish the purpose for which I've given it. God could even use a donkey to communicate his word, as in the Old Testament. Or Balaam, the prophet, who was a bad prophet. And yet God spoke through him blessing upon the children of Israel. God could use people like Judas, who was a follower of Jesus, to prophesy in his name, to cast out demons in his name, to be able to heal the sick because God, Jesus had given to Judas the authority to do that, along with the other 12. And yet in the end, Jesus said, didn't I not myself choose you? And yet one of you is a devil? In other places, calls him the son of damnation or judgment. From those terms, that would be harsh to think that Jesus was truly a follower of Jesus. And I think John, another of Jesus' closest apostles, would say they went out from us that it might become evident that they were never really a part of us. You see, it's very likely that a person could be lost in their sin and in the seats in a church, even a Bible-teaching church, just as a person could be lost as a skid row alcoholic or drug addict it's just a matter of geography not of the heart and Jesus sees the heart not the actions 
Paul said this, the apostle to his young protege in the faith, Timothy, he said, avoid people who have the appearance of godliness, but deny the power thereof. And he also said, don't be fooled that there are people who put on a good show, but they are actually false teachers, false apostles, and angels of light. And why should we be concerned? Because Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. The greatest deception is when a person thinks they don't need a savior. So, how do we respond to this? We're not in that crowd, but let's say that, that you are there, and this is a question. I want you to, to think about this. If God were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? Why should I let you into my kingdom? What would you say? Don't be thinking about somebody else now. Be thinking about you. Nobody else can answer for you, and you're not going to answer for anybody else. It's just you, one-on-one -on -one with God. And he's saying, why should I let you into my kingdom? Here's some ways that people could respond to that. Some would say, you know, I really don't think there's a God. Therefore, there's not really going to be any judgment. When I die, that's it. I mean, I can live a good life now, but when I die, it's it. I'm just be worm food. I'm trying to be disrespectful. That's a phrase I've heard literally from people that I've talked to. And if you're here and you believe that, I'm so glad that you're here today. Thank you for coming and for being here and exploring. But I also want to say, could I push back on that just real briefly with you? If you bet your life on that and you die and there's no judgment, then okay, then that's a faith basis and you're good. But what if it is true? What have you lost? You lost everything. Whereas I could say, or another follower of Jesus could say, look, if I die and then that's it, that's done, what have I really lost? I still have a better quality of life now, being honest and truthful and not cheating on my wife and being faithful with financial responsibilities and, and developing relationships and being there for other. There's a quality of life now that even if it is not true and I die, what have I really lost? Not that much. But you, if, if, if that's your case and you live according to that philosophy and you die, and what if it's true? What have you lost? Everything. Others would come along and say, well, God loves everybody. He's not going to judge anybody. Everybody is going to be saved. Everybody will make it. Well, I can understand as much as we talk about love and grace and forgiveness and mercy as we should, how you could come away with that mindset. But is that biblical? The answer is no. Even in this passage, isn't Jesus talking about there's coming a day when there's going to be a reckoning, when there's going to be a judgment, when there's going to be a decision, enter into the joy of your master or depart from me, I never knew you. Didn't Jesus say not everybody will make it in? Nobody could be more loving, gracious, and forgiving than Jesus. Yet he's saying there is coming a day. The author to Hebrews says this is appointed to the man once to die, and then comes the judgment. A third point that I hear frequently is I think God will balance my good with my bad, like there's this set of cosmic scales. And, you know, I, I think I've done more good than bad in my life. I think I'll be okay. And, and after all, I'm a good person. How good is good enough? 
Sometimes we think that, well, here's good. I, I go to church. I went to church. Well, be careful with that. I was doing a memorial service not far from here and with a person that used to be one of my neighbors, and they had a death in the family. They asked me to do this, and as I met, they had a bunch of people there. So we were talking. None of these people really knew me. And so I'm talking to one person. Yeah, we go to church. We go to church all the time. So what church do you go to? And he turns to his wife and says, what's the name of that church? Another person I was talking to, and they said, you're a pastor wherever this church? I said, no, I'm at Desert Springs. Oh, I thought you looked familiar. That's where we go to church, too. Does that tell you anything about how frequently that may happen? But I want to tell you, it doesn't matter if you're a Christmas and Easter type of person or if you go to church every time the doors are open. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. I love what one person says, sleep in a garage doesn't make you a car. So going to church, and some of you sleep in church too, but that's a whole other story. But I gave my money. Great. That's a good thing. How much? George Barna in his research says that the average Christian in a good Bible teaching church will give somewhere between $10 and $15 a week. I don't care if you give $10 and $15 million. You can never buy your way into heaven. What do you want? Blood? Yes, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. We have a blood drive next Sunday. <laughs> well, I gave blood. Awesome. Didn't make you a Christian. I gave a kidney. One of our missionaries had an extension of his life of over 10 years because one of the people that studied under his Bible teaching literally gave her kidney. When she stands before Jesus, you think she should say, I gave a kidney to a Jewish missionary? It's a good thing, but is it good enough? Provided food for the food drive. I built houses in Mexico, went to Africa, went to Costa Rica, went to Puerto Rico, did all these types of things. Those are good things. But how much is good enough if that's what we're relying upon? You see, the scripture says that none of us are saved by our good works. None of us. All of us are sinners. None of us are saved by our good works. So when we try to put that out there, it sounds pretty lame, doesn't it? Now, I really want you to focus in on your own heart, your own soul, your own mind. I want to ask you that question that I mentioned several times through this entire time and ask you to really think about this. One day, you and I will stand before God to give an account. If he were to ask you this question, why should I let you into my kingdom? What would you answer? That's a harrowing question. But you and I have got to reckon with it. Regardless of what you think about Jesus, even if you think he's just a good teacher, he still asks the question and so we got to reckon with it. we got to deal with it. I know there's been many times in my life where I don't know how to answer that question. As I read through the Lord's teaching, it becomes clearer and clearer to me the fact that I'm striving to be a good person, doing good things. I mean, being a pastor... 
doesn't add up. Left to my own devices, I see that everything about my heart tends inward. Everything about me desires for my own power, my own glory, my own self-satisfaction. I, I left unto myself, I am selfish, self-glorifying, self-worshipping. So what will I say when I stand before God? If he dare ask me that question, why should I let you into my kingdom? What will I point to? What will you point to? The answers that we make up are lame and fall flat. And so is there any possible hope for me? There's a song that we sing speaks to this. It says, my one defense, the one answer I can give, my one defense, my righteousness, the thing that I would cling to, it's not going to work. So God, I need you to give me your righteousness. John 6, 40 says this. Jesus says, whoever does the will of my Father is the one who will enter into the kingdom. And so John 6, 40, Pastor Rick said it, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Looks on the Son and believes what? Believes what he said. And entrusts themselves to him and know him and be known by him, to abide in him, you see. As we've been teaching through the Sermon on the Mount, it's become very clear to me that the Sermon on the Mount is not primarily about how I am supposed to be a good person. The primary message of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is that I cannot be a good enough person. And so he ends the sermon with the question, what are you gonna point to when you get asked, why should I let you into my kingdom? Jesus does not conclude his ministry when he concludes the sermon. The Gospel of Matthew continues on, and we see that the preacher of the greatest sermon ever given descends the mountain and ascends the hill of the skull of Golgotha. We see that the one who taught us to turn the other cheek was slapped and mocked by his own creation. We see the one who taught us to keep our oaths betrayed by a friend with a kiss. We see the one who warned against unrighteous anger be made an object of derision by those whom he made from the dust of the earth. We see the one who cautioned us and warned us against greed betrayed for a handful of silver. We see the one who called us to abstain from unrighteous retaliation become at the hands of his creation a murder victim. Jesus did not conclude his ministry at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Rather, he gave his life to answer the question, why should I let you into my kingdom? What we're gonna do now is, as we reckon with this question, let us also consider and reflect upon Jesus. I'm gonna read through Matthew 27. I would ask that you would, just in this moment, if you would please just remain quiet, if it helps to close your eyes, if it helps to just calm yourself. And as I read through the uh, Gospel of Matthew, chapters 27 and 28 with selected verses, put yourself there 
As you've heard his teaching, now see his life given for you. This is Matthew 27, selected verses. And many were saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. For you are the son of God. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they mocked him saying, well, this guy, he saved others, but he can't even save himself. He is the king of Israel? Fine. Let him come down from the cross. Then we will believe in him. And now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split open. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and saw what took place, they were filled with awe. And they said, truly this man is the son of God. Jesus was buried after being crucified. And three days later, some women were going out to the tomb when an angel appeared to them. The scripture reads, and the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is the judge who takes on our punishment, who takes the weight of our sin and gives us in its place his righteousness. My one defense, my righteousness, is found only in Christ Jesus, who takes on my sin and gives to me his righteousness. When I stand before the king and creator of the universe and answer that question, the only thing I can do is point to the righteousness of Christ, recognizing that he in his grace has given it to me. You and I have a judge that takes the punishment. You and I have a priest that intercedes on our behalf in Christ Jesus. You and I have in Christ Jesus the lamb of God who takes away my sin and your sin and the sin of the world. We have a God who took on flesh, who dies and rises from the grave, conquering over Satan's sin and death and stands victorious over his enemies and cries out to all and says, repent and believe in the gospel. You cannot be good enough. You cannot do enough to make God love you, but you can cling to, you can repent and believe in the gospel, clinging to Jesus, recognizing that my one defense is Jesus Christ, him crucified, buried, and risen. Now, friends, as you reckon with the question that Pastor Rick gave to us, I beseech you, I beg you, point to Jesus, cling to Jesus, trust in Jesus. In just a moment, we're gonna have the band come out. In fact, I'll invite the band out now. And they're going to do two songs. In the first song, there is a lyric that cries out, for I am yours 
and you are mine. Friends, can you say that about your relationship with Jesus? Do you know him? He is yours and you are his. Are you resting in his embrace? As we listen to that song in the lyrics, I would encourage you to pray. For those of you who are far from God, who are not sure what you believe, and you want to believe in Jesus, here's, just pray, repent and believe in the gospel. Just tell Jesus, Lord, I turn from my sin, I turn to you, I throw myself at your feet. You could tell him that quietly in your seat in prayer. And there are those of us who are still trying to figure it out. We don't know if we wanna believe, we're not quite sure what to believe, we have so many questions, so many doubts. Here's what I would encourage you to do today. Would you take a chance? Would you take a risk? Not sure if God exists or if God's listening, but take a chance. He is listening. And would you say, God, if you're there, would you just bring conviction to me? Would you just show yourself to me? Lord, I, I don't know what to believe. Would you help me if you're there? Would you take a chance in this moment? I believe that he will provide. And for those of us that are followers after Jesus, who point to Jesus as our one defense, who look to Christ's finished work on the cross as our righteousness, as to how we answer that question in this moment, as we listen to the words of this song, would you give thanks to the Lord and speak it back to him through prayer? Giving thanks out of a heart of gratitude for his work. Perhaps there are some of us who need to confess or to repent for clinging too often to good works to try to earn God's favor, even though we might know the gospel. You can take the time as we pray quietly in our seats and listening to the song, but for all of us, that we may see the glory of God through the gospel. And at the conclusion of that song, Jamie's going to ask that we would stand and sing together, and there's a final song that we're going to sing called Come to the Altar, the altar being Jesus, that we can throw ourselves down at the feet of Jesus. And here are some of the lyrics, that the Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Friends, when you stand before God, if he were to ask you, why should I let you into my kingdom? Point to Jesus for your forgiveness and my forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Christ. And therefore, in this moment and every moment from hereafter, we can say, my soul will rest in your embrace.